Thanks for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. President-elect Donald Trump continues making controversial selections for his cabinet and staff. He chooses fast food executive Andrew Puzder for Labor Secretary and climate denier Scott Pruitt to head the EPA. Republican lawmakers push back on Trump's threat to impose a tax on U.S. companies that move jobs overseas, and the president-elect's pick for national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and his son both face criticism for fake news tweets. Here for the domestic hour of the Friday News Roundup, Cheryl Gay Stolberg of the New York Times, Naftali Ben-David of the Wall Street Journal, and Lisa Lehrer of the Associated Press. I do invite you, as always, to be part of this Friday News Roundup. Give us a call at 800-433-8850. Send us an email to drshow at wamu.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And remember, we are also video streaming this hour of the Friday News Roundup, so you can watch as well as listen. And welcome to all of you. Thank you, Thank Diane. you. Thank you. Good Honored to, to be here, Diane, you. for one Thank of your last you. shows. Thank you, Cheryl. That's very kind of you. Let's talk about some of the president-elect's picks for his uh, various heads of department. Naftali, talk about uh, Andrew Puzder as labor secretary. Well, he's a guy who has been, like some of Trump's other picks, very critical of regulations that have been imposed. In his case, of course, in the area of workplace regulations, he is CEO of a company that franchises a couple big fast food uh, chains, uh, Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. And he's spoken out against raising the minimum wage. He's spoken out against uh, the uh, Affordable Care Act. And so with him, as well as the EPA pick, this guy named Scott Pruitt, I think you're going to see at least an attempt of a massive rollback of a lot of the regulations that the Obama administration has been putting in place for the last couple of years. You always see, of course, a little bit of a reversal, of course, when, when the White House changes party. But this is going to be sort of beyond that, because I think there's just this extreme nature of the difference in approach between some of the new folks coming in and some of the outgoing people. Lisa Lehrer. So what's striking to me, I mean, this was the week that we started to really get a fuller picture of the entire cabinet. I think he's filled about 13 of 21 positions. And I've been sort of thinking about it in my head as shorthand as G&E. It's generals and executives. And, you know, that makes sense in a way because Trump ran as someone who wanted out, an outsider campaign with outsider picks. But these aren't, you know, so he's not going to the usual suspects as much, the senators, the governors, uh, the longtime politicians. But, you know, these aren't really Outsiders. A lot of these people are really big donors. Linda McMahon, of course, who uh, ran for Senate in Connecticut, who uh, was head of the WWE. She's going to be uh, running small business administration. And she gave six million dollars to Trump's super PAC. The finance chair, Steve, Manu uh, his fi Trump's finance chair, Steve Mnuchin, is going to be Treasury secretary. So, you know, I, I guess these are outsiders, but they're certainly not outsiders to the political process or Trump's own political process. And they're, he's certainly not um, draining the swamp, as he sure. promised. Yeah, I think Donald Trump is revealing quite a lot about how he's going to govern through his cabinet picks. And what we're seeing is consistently across the board, conservative 
ideological picks who are opposed in many cases or have policies that oppose the current Obama policies. Um, During the campaign, Trump was very hard to pin down ideologically. He kind of said things that were all over the board. People took cues when he selected Mike Pence to be his vice president. Mike Pence is a very staunch social conservative and a fiscal conservative. And we're seeing that pattern throughout his picks. So not only Pruitt, um, but and General Kelly, but also Ben Carson at HUD, uh, neurosurgeon, ran for president, deeply critical of social safety net programs. He's got an up from the bootstraps philosophy that um, makes a lot of mayors and, and some housing experts nervous. And so I, I think what we're seeing is, again, despite Trump's ideological, per, seeming personal ideological inconsistency, he's been very, very, very consistent. And we're also, as Lisa said, seeing a lot of generals. And that's raising concern about militarization of the cabinet. Uh, to those who are concerned that Donald Trump has a style of kind of a strongman or a, a dictator, you hear that criticism of him, uh, this selection of generals feeds into that critique. But I do think there's a little bit of a potential for internal contradiction here, despite that, because Trump's approach has been the sort of gut-level populist. You know, he comes up with this stuff. Sometimes it seems like without a lot of thought, but it's his impulse on what the people want and what would help the common man. And a lot of these folks are doctrinaire conservatives, and doctrinaire conservatism is not the same thing as gut-level populism. And there's a lot of areas where that could come into conflict, especially because he's picked people who are outspoken, who aren't afraid to break the China. I mean, that's one thing a lot of them have in common is they're sort of these brash, aggressive, outspoken types. And it's fine to pick people like that who've criticized your opponents, perhaps. But when they're inside the administration, if they're all equally outspoken and equally ready to go their own way, he could be putting together a very fractious administration that's kind of all over the place and sometimes at odds with itself. My favorite example from the past week of those kinds of contradictions was uh, Al Gore comes to Trump Tower, meets with Ivanka Trump, comes out, gives a statement to reporters all about climate change. The next day, Donald Trump names uh, Scott Pruitt, a guy who's headed up the uh, state efforts to overturn the Obama administration, EPA's efforts to regulate emissions. And a climate denier. So, you know, it's hard to take from that where we know Ivanka is a very close, perhaps one of, if not the closest advisor to her father. It's hard to take from that where he's necessarily going. And certainly it could create an administration that's rife with internal rivalries. That's what we've seen from his campaign. He had, what, three campaign managers. That's what we're hearing from this process already internally. The people around him are sort of already jockeying for power. So it'll be interesting to watch. But at the end of his campaign, he came together very consistently with Kellyanne Conway about uh, as his campaign manager and really found a a winning a winning formula. And and she, too, is, is very conservative. And we know she's a powerful Influence. One thing I would say about the inconsistencies or the tensions, we are also seeing this in Donald Trump's own statements. For instance, on climate change, Donald Trump has said climate change is an expensive hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. Yet, in an interview with the New York Times shortly after um, he was elected, he allowed that humans might cause some global warming, that he would entertain thinking about the Paris Accord. So he himself has continued to articulate inconsistent statements depending on the audience 
that he is addressing. Yeah, I mean, most transitions, what you see is a president-elect coming in with, if not a shadow cabinet, at least certain pools of people that they're expected to choose from and that they've signaled that they like. With this team, you feel like they got elected, perhaps to their own surprise, and then kind of looked around at who they could put in various spots. And so there's a certain air of unpredictability and sometimes seeming randomness, as in the case of Dr. Carson. And you see that really in the Secretary of State pick, I think, because there are all these people that are that the transition is saying are being considered, but a lot of them have completely different temperaments and different philosophies. And you sort of wonder, do they have a vision for what they want in that job if people so different are being considered? Mm -hmm. Kelly and Conway introduced a new name in that Secretary of State column just yesterday. Are you talking about Rex Tillerson? uh, 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 No, she talked about uh, Alan Mulally. Mulally. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, this has been a very strange, uh, and it's perhaps the most important position, and it's been the most drawn out and the most chaotic and the most sort of transparently chaotic, where at first it was going to be Rudy Giuliani and Mitt Romney, then it was expanded to four, then it was expanded to about 10, and now you're hearing this new name. And again, these are people that they seem to be struggling with what it is that they want out of that position. On the one hand, they have these CEO types that we're talking about. On the other hand, we have longtime public officials. We have John Bolton in there, a guy who's been a very hard-hitting figure in the State Department, or, or was for a long time. So... It's just not clear what they're getting out there. Lisa. And what's really striking to me about um, the Secretary of State picks, too, is this doesn't seem to be a decision over policy direction. I mean, these are people that have vastly different views on policy. Donald Trump, of course, feels very close with Russia, has spoken very like glowingly about Russia. Um, and Giuliani has been sort of, uh, who's been in the mix, has been sort of back and forth. Romney, of course, got very little credit in 2012 for calling Russia the country's biggest ge- geopolitical threat. He's in the mix. So on a lot of issues, on China, on Russia, on Iran, these guys are all, the candidates that we're hearing are all over the map, which doesn't give you a, a good sense of where Trump himself is on foreign policy. And also, given the fact that he's not someone with a lot of foreign policy experience, this is an even more, where that person is on these issues is even more important. Cheryl, when might we likely expect a pick for his secretary of state? Uh, I don't know. I think perhaps next week. Next week is also going to be a very big week, though, in Trump world, because on December 15th, Donald Trump has said he would make a major announcement about how he is going to manage his businesses. And so we have this uh, a lot of concern about Trump, uh, the Trump company having deep roots in countries all over the world potential, vast potential for conflict of interest. Donald Trump really hasn't said precisely how he is going to manage that. We just heard today that he intends to continue as executive producer of The Apprentice, Celebrity Apprentice. He intends to continue to get paid. I don't understand how rules governing the White House, the presidency, how this can possibly happen. Well, it's turning out that a lot of these things aren't ironclad rules, but are just sort of the way things have always been done. And one thing about Trump, he doesn't do things the way they've always been done. Natalie Ben-David, he is editor and reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Your calls, your questions, comments, I look forward to speaking with you. Welcome back to the first hour of our 
news roundup focusing on domestic news and certainly at the top of that agenda are President-elect Donald Trump's picks for his cabinet, all of which must be confirmed, with the exception of one. And before we go to the question of congressional confirmation, I'd like to ask you about Stephen Flynn, because not only has his son been removed from the transition team because of his tweets, um, negative tweets out there, especially regarding the ping-pong comment pizza uh, shop that was really had a scary situation the other day, but other tweets. But Stephen Flynn himself has tweeted, um, and I just wonder about all that, Cheryl. Right. I think you mean Michael is the father and Stephen is the son. And so General Flynn, who has been, who Donald Trump wants to be his national security advisor and has named his national security advisor, a position, by the way, that does not require Senate confirmation, um, has used his Twitter account, which has about 106,000 followers, to retweet um, various specious uh, accusations, such as the notion that Hillary Clinton um, was involved with a child trafficking ring. That tweet in particular prompted a gunman from North Carolina to turn up here in Washington at a well-known pizza place called Comet Ping Pong and fire some shots. And it's drawn a lot of attention to this notion of fake news. So General Flynn has used his account to retweet these. His son, who was working for the transition, also did. And the son has been Basically, can he's been he's been fired? Donald Trump issued a s- statement saying he's fired. I was reminded I have to say of his old show, "You're fired." Uh, but in the case of General Flynn, he is not fired, By the and way, it's going to raise both. serious questions about the way he can adv- advise the president on very sensitive national security exactly. matters. So it's raising questions about his judgment. They are both Michael. Flynn, go ahead, oh. Neftali. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so, I made the mistake as well. I mean, it's true that on the one hand, you have this, this son who has tweeted uh, after the gunman went in, he tweeted, until Pizzagate is proven to be false, it'll remain a story. So that's really kind of an incredible statement if you think about it. He's sort of saying you can make an assertion until somebody disproves it. We can treat it as something real. And this whole question of fake news, I think what this highlights is that fake news isn't just this false stories that people accept, like Martians landing in Chicago, they have usually villains. There's usually somebody who's being accused of having done something horrible, whether it's Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, President Obama, the Democrats, the Muslims. And what that means, there are targets. And what we've seen a couple times in the last week is that there are people who take this stuff seriously and they take up arms or they make threats and they go out and try to act on some of this stuff. And it is a bit sobering that Michael Flynn the, the elder, uh, who he has also tweeted about uh, Hillary Clinton, money laundering, sex crimes with children. And it does, I think, if he had to face a confirmation hearing, it would be a rocky one, as it happens to the position of national security advisor is not subject to Senate confirmation. But I'm just not sure this is a problem for Donald Trump because he himself has trafficked in these kinds of stories. He, of course, tweeted uh, after the election that there was, you know, millions of people voting illegally in California and Virginia. And that is not true. 
and that's something that started on through Alex Jones, who's a big uh, a radio host who pushes a lot of these fake stories. So this, I mean, Donald Trump has himself has trafficked and promoted these kinds of conspiracy theories. So I'm not sure that he really cares that his national security advisor is doing the same. But I, I do think for that position in particular, that job is a job where you are mediating between uh, generals and the cabinet officials, and you're sifting through a lot of facts, often sort of confusing facts coming in from abroad. I mean, just look at what happened with the attacks on the Benghazi um, consulate during Obama's tenure. These these facts can change a lot over time. So it's a job where facts really, really matter. And you have a guy who's known as uh, former employees have said he has Flynn facts, his own facts, and he's not open to hearing other points of view. So I do think it is a real problem. By the way, I have done an extra interview with uh, Jim Fallows on this very issue of fake news and its consequences and some of the appointments that uh, President-elect Trump has made thus far. That extra piece will be up on our website this afternoon. I hope you'll give a listen. Now, let's go back to Ben Casey as the... um, Secretary of... Carson. Carson. Sorry, I said Casey, Ben Carson, and his appointment and what that could mean. So let's start with the idea that HUD is the agency that's responsible for sort of ensuring that Americans have access to safe and affordable housing in a variety of ways. And that includes public housing, and it also includes administering the Fair Housing Act. It includes making sure that Americans who want to rent an apartment, if they're African Americans or minorities, don't get discriminated against. I would note that this is the very act that Donald Trump's company was accused of violating in the 1970s when uh, it faced accusations from the Justice Department that it refused to, refl- to to rent to African Americans. His company settled that lawsuit without admitting wrongdoing. But now you have Ben Carson uh, basically assuming the role of HUD secretary and in an era when Trump has indicated that he would roll back some of the policies that the Obama administration enacted in order to ensure fair housing. Obama was very aggressive in promoting anti-discrimination policies. Many conservatives thought that he went too far. Those kinds of policies are now going to be rolled back. And Carson is going to be at the helm of this agency, and he's a man who doesn't have any experience in housing. He's a neurosurgeon, and a lot of people are saying he may be a brilliant brain surgeon, but brain surgery does not equate with running a complex housing bureaucracy. Someone who works in uh, in government, made it local and state government, which has a lot of dealings with, you know, HUD, of course, made a joke to me about his inexperience. They said, well, I suppose he's lived in a house. So that's the level of uh, experience we're dealing with. This is a very complicated, bureaucratic, uh, sweeping 
agency. He doesn't have a lot of experience managing those kinds of big organizations. But I think it does show one thing that has been consistent about these appointments, which is loyalty. Trump likes people who are with him, even if they don't have necessarily qualifications. I mean, it's interesting because that's true. But on the other hand, let's not forget how Trump ridiculed Ben Carson on stage holding up his own belt buckle and saying, quote, how stupid are the people of Iowa for purportedly buying into Ben Carson's childhood stories. But I I think the other thing this highlights is the importance of sub-cabinet positions. It's one thing to choose some generals and senators to run these agencies, but critical are going to be, you know, the head of the criminal uh, division at the Justice Department or, you know, the head of the Bureau for Southeast Asia at the State Department. And the civil rights positions are going to be absolutely critical. Yeah, so we shouldn't, I think, lose track while we're caught up in the drama of these cabinet appointments of the very important sub-cabinet positions that are going to have a lot to do with how this really plays out in the next few years. So what about congressional confirmation and how likely is that to be for some of the more controversial choices, Neptal. Well, there's no question that some of them are going to face some pretty rocky, uh, a rocky reception. I mean, you think of Puzder in particular at Labor. You think of Pruitt at the EPA. Right now, it's not clear uh, whether any of them is going to have enough opposition to be to actually have to withdraw. We'll see. Usually, the rule in these things is one or two people ends up being a sacrificial lamb. On the other hand. This is a Republican-controlled Senate, and they are going to, you know, for that reason, have a higher bar for someone to be disqualified. Let's talk about Jeff Sessions as attorney general. Now, that's going to be I would bet he's going to get confirmed. He's a senator. Um, They're not going to reject him. But that is a very, very important post when you're talking about civil rights, about everything from race and policing to the housing discrimination matters we just talked about. You've seen the Obama Justice Department be very, very aggressive in investigating police departments like Baltimore that have been accused of violating civil rights of African-Americans. I would wager that under a Jeff Sessions Um, Justice Department and under a Donald Trump Justice Department, those kinds of investigations are going to go away. That is going to generate a lot of angst on Capitol Hill when he comes up for confirmation, and you're going to hear a lot of screaming about that. I mean, how the rubber hits the road here is going to be really interesting to watch. First of all, it's not always as easy to roll back regulations as just declaring that you're rolling them back. Often there's an extended legal process. People can go to court. Secondly, there's going to be a civil service that remains in place that's in charge with implementing the policies of this new administration, and they can handle it in all kinds of ways. They can be real cooperative. They can be less cooperative. So I think you're going to see a bit of a clash of interests here in the next few months and years, and we shouldn't assume we know exactly how it's going to play out. And there was some pushback against the president-elect when he said he would fine companies that were moving their uh, operations overseas. Yeah, I mean, if there's one principle that's been dear to the hearts of Republicans and conservatives, it's that you don't slap a tax on somebody because you don't like their business decisions. I mean, that violates almost every principle that economic conservatives hold dear from having a level playing field, not picking winners and losers, and not using taxes to enact social policy. So the fact that he's done everything from go after companies for moving folks overseas, jobs overseas to Boeing for its contract, uh, you know, on Air Force One, uh, and to this threat to impose a 35% tax on companies that ship jobs overseas and then try to reimport those products, it violates, again, the conservative orthodoxy we were talking about. About. And to the extent you've seen a little bit of pushback from Republicans like Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy, it's been on those issues. To me, this is going to be one of the most fa- fascinating political storylines to watch in the first year of the Trump administration, which is how the Republican Party 
you know, who are leading on Capitol Hill, who are empowered to do a lot of things, square their decades of uh, conservative orthodoxy with some of these things that Trump is doing. And so far, it's been pretty tortured. I mean, Kevin McCarthy came out and gave this press conference last this past week where he was, you know, he didn't want to answer questions. He was tiptoeing around, you know, repeated, uh, you know, sort of critical questions about Trump's trade policies. And he was sort of all over the the map. And then he finally said at the end, a little exasperated, let's take a deep breath. He's not sworn in yet. So I think this is going to be a really hard line uh, for a lot of these Republicans, particularly Paul Ryan, to walk. And they also don't want to invite their own nasty tweets uh, from the president, the president's bully pulpit, especially Paul Ryan, which has this very, you know, complicated, contentious history with Trump. Diane, I think also we should talk about the president-elect's personal style here, because what we've seen this week is a propensity or a willingness to go after individuals and businesses. He used his Twitter account to go after Boeing on the Air Force One. He said, cancel the order. He used his Twitter account to go directly after a union local in Indiana, a union leader. And this to some smacks of cyberbullying, singling out. He's a very powerful person. He's the president-elect of the United States, and he's singling out individual companies and people for um, his own, you know, Twitter attacks, basically. Cheryl Gates, Stolberg, The New York Times, and you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. I'm going to open the phones, and um, I think there are lots of folks who'd like to be part of this conversation. Let's go first to Muscoota, Illinois. Billy, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Diane. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know, I was wondering how people like General Petraeus and General Flynn can carry a top-secret clearance. And the reason I'm asking this is because my brother was in the Air Force and stationed in the Philippines. He was getting transferred to the security services in, in San Antonio. And they found that he had a forged performance report in his records. And OSI proved that it was forged because the supervisor denied writing it. But just because he had that performance report in his record, he was, de- he was denied a top-secret clearance. And he could only get a secret. So I'm sitting up and saying you got General Petraeus who was talking to Broadwell, and you got General Flynn treat, uh, tweeting false information about people. So I'm just I'm just asking this question. All right, thanks for calling. I mean, I think that's a particularly salient question when it comes to David Petraeus, and part of it is because so much of the Trump campaign was about attacking Hillary Clinton for her uh, purported careless, uh, reckless handling of national secrets. So for them now to put forth a nominee for Secretary of State, as Petraeus is being talked about, who who pled guilty to violations of, of, you know, pretty significant laws regarding classified information, I think would be difficult. I think it's probably what's going to keep him from getting the job. All right. And to Tom in Madison, Connecticut, you're on the air. Hi, Diane. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I was wondering if the panel could comment at all on anything positive about Donald Trump's picks for his cabinet. All right, Cheryl. So it's funny. I was just thinking about this, and I was thinking that we've um, I don't mean to come across, and I don't think any of us mean to come across as negative. Donald Trump has said that he was going to upend Washington. He was going to drain the swamp. This is what he promised to do. He promised to um, to bring change, and we are seeing 
how he is bringing change in, in every way. He's picked cabinet members. If you're a conservative, you are happy about these Donald Trump cabinet picks. You voted for him because you want Obama policies repealed. Um, people liked his strong and direct style. The voters who supported him like the fact that he is an executive uh, and that he relies on other executives and generals. So a big part of the country is very, very happy about what's going on here in Washington. And we in Washington, as we chronicle this, must not forget that. And I can tell you, I was at an event, uh, Mike Pence spoke at the Heritage Foundation this past week, and they're extremely excited about a lot of these picks. They feel that it's um, an actualization or will be an actualization of a lot of what they've worked for during the Obama era. So there, there are a lot of people who are very excited. I think the reason... There's some controversy. Part of the reason there's some controversy around um, some of these picks is that Donald Trump hasn't really gone out there since um, since winning the winning the election and sort of laid out his vision for the country. We're getting sort of select interviews. He sat down with, of course, The Times. He sat down with The Today Show. He tweets out an 140 blast, but he hasn't really. Um, put himself out there to be asked some of these questions about some of these people and about where he want the direction he wants to take the country. Uh, so that's why this net press conference this next week will be awfully fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, you know, in fairness, these people are very strong, successful, outspoken people for the most part who are not afraid to speak their minds or to upend the established order. You got to say he has picked people like that who've been strong leaders. He's people like himself, really. Naftalik Ben-David, Cheryl Gay Stolberg, Lisa Lair, they are all here to answer your questions. Send us your comments by email drshow at wamu.org. Don't forget you can watch this hour of the News Roundup live by streaming at drshow.org. And welcome back. Cheryl Gay-Stolberg, talk about uh, what the Ohio legislature did just yesterday. Okay, so just yesterday in Ohio, the legislature sent a bill to Governor John Kasich that would ban abortions after a heartbeat is detected as early as six weeks. Um, that bill was long presumed to be dead in the Ohio legislature, but now that Trump has been elected, um, it's passed, and it will go before Governor John Kasich, and he will consider whether or not to sign it. He hasn't said whether or not he will. Well, this also raises the issue of the Supreme Court, I think. One of the most uh, significant things, we haven't talked about that appointment, but that's going to be one of the most consequential and could last for decades. And it's particularly striking because Mitch McConnell made this decision about a year ago, whenever it was that uh, uh, Justice Scalia died, that he was not going to allow President Obama's nominee to have a vote. And it seems to have paid off in the sense that now Donald Trump's elected. He's going to get to pick the next uh, Supreme Court justice who will be hugely influential uh, given the makeup of the court. And will rule on laws like the one we're just talking about. Absolutely. And Donald Trump has said that he uh, will appoint conservative Supreme Court justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade and send it back to the states. Uh, so this is obviously a deep concern to abortion rights advocates. It comes on the um, 
on the heels of eroding many of the gains uh, that they felt they made uh, in earlier decades. Over the past 10 years, there have been these have been tough years for the abortion rights movement, and they see uh, tougher times ahead. All right. To Charlotte, North Carolina, Anthony, you're on the air. Hi, Diana. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I I was calling because I have a question about LGBT protections, and I think this is one thing that we really haven't heard a lot from coming from um, the from Donald Trump's campaign. We I know that Mike Pence was interested in using electroshock therapy to try to convert gay men to make them straight again. But then on the other hand, we've seen Donald Trump hold an LGBT flag at one of his rallies. I don't know if he was just doing that out of force, but my main question is, um, for you and the panel, what do you all think um, is going to happen with the protections here in the United States, and how quickly do you think that things would happen? Um, yeah. So, well, we've seen an interesting contrast. We were just talking about abortion, on what Donald Trump has said on abortion versus LGBT rights. In a 60 Minutes interview, he did say that he would send Roe back to the states, but he also said he believed that the same-sex marriage ruling was the law of the land. So he's at least signaled that he is accepting of same-sex marriage. Um, as to Mike Pence and whether or not he's promoted conversion therapy, I, I'm not I'm not sure of that, but I do know that many LGBT people across the country are very concerned about Obama-era policies um, being rolled back. I think we'll learn a lot when Tom Price is comes up for a confirmation as the Health and Human Services Secretary, and we'll learn a lot also during the Jeff Sessions confirmation hearing. Uh, as Attorney General, these issues are bound to come up. Has Tom Price made statements against abortion? I am I'm not personally aware of what he has said, but I believe so. I don't know what he said on gay rights. They strip funding from Planned Parenthood, yes, for sure. That's right. Um, that's right. But, you know, these are fi- what's interesting. This is another example where the goals of the National Republican Party may come into conflict with some of these uh, appointments. You know, if you talk to some Republicans, you know, they'll privately say that they don't want to have these fights on same sex marriage because they know that the country's mood and uh, acceptance of these relation of, you know, uh, LGBT relationships has really shifted dramatically. And that's not necessarily a winning strategy, um, at, you know, in these swing states for these Senate races, governor's races, national races. So, you know, they they've been kind of hoping there's a certainly a wing in the party that's been kind of hoping they could avoid having these conversations. I, that may not be possible. I, I feel compelled to mention that they're accepting of the L and the G and right. perhaps the B. That's true. But the T transgender has been a hot button that's issue and many transgender rights advocates are very, very concerned, and many conservatives believe that President Obama went way too far in extending, uh, in ordering schools to um, make bathrooms, all bathrooms available to transgender students. Um, so that that is still a hot-button issue. All right, let's go to CC in Marengo, Illinois. You're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, Mr. Trump is going to tell us on uh, four days after the electoral college, four days before the electoral college meets, whether or not he intends to be a constitutional president. If he doesn't divest himself of his businesses, he is not going to be constitutional president. Period. The- it says very clearly that the president, that no elected official can have 
uh, an emolument office title or any kind whatsoever from a king, prince, or foreign state. The Electoral College has a responsibility to select the runner-up if he does, if Mr. Trump decides that he is going to run his business as well as govern the country. Well, <laughs> there's sort of a lot there. I mean, I think, you know, the idea of the Electoral College not going along with the the way the votes played out, I think, is is probably unlikely. Of course, this recent election where Hillary Clinton seems to be leading by a substantial margin in the popular vote has raised a lot of questions about the Electoral College, but my hunch is it's just not the kind of thing that's going to change anytime soon, though this will certainly intensify the debate. In terms of his business dealings, we'll see what, he's, what he says on December 15th. I think a lot of those things are open to interpretation, and one thing a lot of us, I guess, are discovering is that many of these rules don't apply to the president or their guidelines and things that have been done a certain way, but that the president isn't under a legal obligation to do. I mean, well, a- what about the emoluments clause? Well, again, that's a matter of interpretation. There are certainly people who would say that is un- unconstitutional, but others w- wouldn't. So that means it would go to the courts. And whether the courts would be willing to say that a sitting president, you know, is acting unconstitutionally, I think it's kind of a tall order. I would direct you to what Donald Trump himself said in his interview with The New York Times, which is that a president can't have a conflict of interest. He has said he checked with his lawyers on this, and that's his position. I don't understand that. that well, that will be debated no among sense. lawyers and whomever tra- uh, challenges it, but that is his position. But ultimately, the court's going to have to decide it should it come to that, and I think that's the only—it doesn't matter what we think. It matters what they think. And I think the idea, of this again, of the Supreme Court stripping a president of his office because of that clause, I think, is, is pretty unlikely. It's Especially a Supreme Court that Donald Trump has appointed one or two of the justices on. All right, let's go to Christian Huntingburg, Indiana. You're on the air. Hi, Diane. Hi. Diane. Um, my comment is uh, not just to your ears or your panel's ears, but literally everyone that's listening, especially somebody that has the pool um, to make things change in this country. It's about trade. Uh you know, I live in Indiana, and, uh, you know, I'm familiar with the carrier deal. And uh, I don't think anybody talks about uh, I, what I think is the real reason why these companies move is because they can, they can go off of the backs of cheap labor to make these moves, if that makes sense. I, I certainly do understand your point. Someone has challenged the number of jobs actually saved by uh, Donald Trump. I think at first he said 2,000, then it was down to 1,000. Now it's down to 800. But there are a lot of other companies, not only in Indiana but around the country, or is he going to give them the same kind of deal? Well, that's the big question, because right now, and he's not president yet, of course, but right now his policy has been to target individual companies, to call them out by name, and in some sense to be involved in the negotiation as to what would keep them here. He's also talked a lot about punishing companies that move overseas, but in the carrier case, it seemed to be at least as much a matter of giving them breaks for staying as opposed to punishing them for leaving. You'd think he can't keep up four years of going after individual companies, and that this will at some point have to be a matter of a broader policy that we undertake to keep these jobs here. Uh, on the other hand, he's certainly establishing a reputation and image for himself as a guy who kicks butt and takes names and, you know, gets results. And it's been, I mean, it may be 
questionable policy or even bad policy, but it's really good theater. There was a poll this week that said uh, 60% of voters said the carrier deal gives them a more favorable uh, view of Donald Trump. It's good Uh, politics for him. For sure. Talk about um, the call to or from Taiwan. So uh, Donald Trump broke decades of American protocol by accepting a congratulatory call from the president of Taiwan. Uh, this is not something that our State Department would have would have advised um, under a one China policy. And your, your foreign policy panel can can address this better than I. Um, this was this was a big deal. Uh, my newspaper reported this week that Bob Dole, the former senator worked for uh, months to try to lay the groundwork between the Taiwan and the Trump campaign to basically improve relations. And while right after this call was accepted, Mike Pence came out and said, well, it was just a congratulatory call. It was sort of a lark. Not a lark. It was a a spur of the moment kind of thing. And he accepted it and it was no big deal. Come to find out, in fact, it was the product of months of lobbying uh, on behalf of Bob Dole, who represents the government of Taiwan. What's so? What was so mystifying? Well, there were a number of things that were unusual about this episode, but one thing that was so mystifying was the reason. At first, they said it's no big deal. Why is Washington? Everyone's freaking out about this call. When in fact, it is a shift in policy. So why not? Why send out the future vice president to do interviews and say it's no big deal, only to have the next day everyone find out that actually this has been in the works for months and uh, it is a shift in policy. It's very, very confusing, and it's a, ch- a reporting challenge for all of us for sure. Lisa Lehrer, she's a reporter for the Associated Press, and you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. All right, and a caller in Houston, Texas. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Diane. Hello, Diane. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So uh, my comment and question was that, you know, we have a president who was campaigning on draining the swamp, and uh, in the past the U.S. has been pretty upset in general, uh, you know, business-oriented agendas of lobbies and individuals uh, influencing the political agendas with their uh, money and their own influence, uh, essentially outweighing the votes of ordinary citizens. And it now feels like the outrage is about just those individuals' policies in his cabinet and occasionally on his own person, and not how, how we've just given businesses the reins and not just the ability to influence. It's, the question to me is it feels like more is a state of denial that we've entered where we're willing to believe something, but sometimes we just don't want to actually see how have we come to a point where we're turned on the dime and entered an opposite direction? Yeah, I'm not quite sure I understand that. Cheryl, perhaps you. I think, frankly, in a way, it hits on what I just said, which is that Donald Trump campaigned on draining the swamp, but now we've learned this week that he relied on lobbyists to arrange a call between Taiwan and uh, and and him. And so is that draining the swamp? 
Well, it's also true that a lot of the cabinet appointments have a very strong business background. Sure. And so there are those who say that that contrasts with the populist message on which he ran, and that's gotten a lot of attention. A lot of these folks are very well, wealthy business leaders, uh, and that's drawn some attention. And I know the transition itself has sought to sort of tamp that down and find some appointees who don't fit that mold because of their concern about that image. But Please. one thing I think we're all watching is whether the folks who elected and supported Donald Trump are okay with all this. And so far they have been, but let's keep in mind it's very early. The man is not even president yet, uh, and whether they stick with him when he doesn't fulfill some of these promises in the way he proposed, for example, the wall, it was going to be the biggest wall, you know, the Great Wall of Trump is now, he says, maybe more like a fence. Are, are his supporters okay with that? Are they okay with the, tr- the swamp seeming to get a little murkier after his promises to drain it with all these uh, donors getting these big jobs? We'll have to wait and see, and I think a lot of that will depend whether people feel uh, more economically secure in their own lives. And that right, could take let's, time. Uh, talk about one of the real heroes of this country and perhaps even the last real hero, John Glenn, the first person to orbit the earth. He died yesterday at the age of 95. Cheryl? You know, I think you hit it on the head. One of the last real heroes, Donald, um, John Glenn was a he was a Midwesterner. He was a test pilot. He was an astronaut. He was a senator. Uh, he served this country. He served in a time when um, when we could look up to our public officials. He served without, almost without a hint of scandal. He was caught up a little bit in the Keating Five scandal a while back, which also caught up John McCain. But he survived it, as did McCain. And I think in retrospect, Americans really are yearning for public servants like John Glenn, and he will be missed. Yeah, I think in many ways, if he was one of the last heroes, it was as much because of us and what the country has become as because of him. Uh, he was certainly an admirable man and a great man, but you also have difficulty right now imagining the country unifying so completely and feeling such positive emotions throughout all the diversity of the country as we did back then. And I think it speaks a lot to the intense divisions where we can't even agree on what's real and what's not right now, the almost universal adulation in which he was held. Interesting that he did not return to space for a very long time because President Kennedy thought of him as too valuable a hero to risk once again. Yeah, I mean, he was a national treasure, and they didn't want to put him at risk. It does tell you a lot about the worth that he uh, that he held for the country. Of course, he did ultimately return to space at age 77, becoming the oldest person to do that. By that time, a lot of many years had elapsed. Uh, but yeah, he was a, he was considered a national treasure. I must say, I was fortunate enough to be invited to a small dinner with him and his lovely wife Annie one evening. And he was just as kind and personable as he was heroic. He was very soft-spoken. He um, just made you feel comfortable, even though I think he was, at heart, a very shy person. He was a hero with humility. Yeah, he really, really was. And... We're going to miss him, and we'll think lots about him. One last question from Lucille. I think it's a good one. What authority does Trump have to cancel the Boeing contract even before 
he takes office. Well, it's cert- well, he's not, he certainly doesn't have any before he takes office. It's not clear he has any afterwards either. I mean, for one thing, just so we know, Boeing has challenged this idea that there's a $4 billion contract, saying there's no such thing. It's a $170 million contract for just some initial work. Uh, but there are processes for these things. There are bids and there are procedures, and it's not clear what authority the president would have to unilaterally cancel. Neftali Ben-David, Lisa Lehrer, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg, thank you all so much, and Thanks for listening all. I'm Diane Reem. The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Cliff Gallagher answers the phones. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR.